Welcome, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to this retreat and to this course on imaginal practice. I think uh, tonight, by way of introduction, I'd like to start by um, talking a little bit about imagination and particularly uh, trying to open up some space, if that is needed, uh, in, the, in our minds, in our hearts, in our collective psyche, really, in relationship to imaginal practice. And also talk a little bit about the kind of doorways and directions that exist within imaginal practice. So, if we consider for uh, a moment the range of uh, ways that people practice with imagination, or the range of uses to which imagination is put, uh, and particularly the kinds of directions, the kind of conceptions that uh, form around imagination and imaginal practice, and the kind of flavors that that practice can have. So directions, conceptions, and flavors. We can kind of see uh, quite a range here, we can be aware of quite a range here. The imagination can be used for planning, for creative planning, for visioning in the sense of creative visioning. So, for example, people talk about uh, visioning a different future for society, for civilization, for humankind in regards to the challenges uh, for example, of climate change or environmental degradation, destruction. People speak about uh, needing a new narrative, a new story there. This is a use of the imagination as visioning or, for example, at Guy House, we have periodically Guy House visioning meetings. Where do we want this organization to be? What are the di- in, in five, ten years, twenty years' time, what are the directions we want to move in? What would we like to see happening? So this use of imagination in a very sort of instrumental, uh, practical way, really. Uh, then there might be, for example, the use of imagination to develop certain skills or to rehearse, uh, for example, in sports, to uh, imagine a certain shot or a certain situation in a game or, uh, or perhaps in music, a certain passage at the keyboard, if you're a piano player or on the instrument, whatever it is. Imagining mentally can actually develop the motor skills, interestingly enough, they've found, uh, to to increase one's skill and one's performance. And then there's a whole range of the use of imagination for self-improvement in different ways, for the cultivation of qualities or attitudes, qualities and attitudes that might be deemed uh, helpful, necessary, worthwhile. 
And here the range is huge. So, for example, in the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha's uh, basic discourse on mindfulness, one of the longest subsections in that is in the mindfulness of the body section, and it regards the contemplation of death. The part of that is uh, going to what was then open cemetery grounds and contemplating corpses in different stages of decay. But the Buddha also says, well, if that's not possible, you can do it in your imagination. And what's the purpose? What's the uh, conceptual framework that's holding that? Well, it's the intention behind it is for dispassion, dispassion regarding this body and to a certain extent regarding this life, and also a sense of urgency. So urgency with regard to practice, with regard to awakening and the path, and dispassion with regard to other aspects of life and uh, in relation to the body, etc. That's generally in the Pali Canon, the sort of reason for doing uh, that imagination around one's death. Here, it's interesting to note in that practice, the imagination uh, is regarded, the images used are used in the service of realizing a concrete fact. The material decay of the body, the impermanence of the body. So that's an interesting um, limitation on, on the use of the imagination, an interesting direction. It's in the service of a concrete fact, and particularly material decay and the impermanence of the body. Also in the Pali Canon, the Buddha, in a few different places, um, advises, particularly if you're beset by the hindrances or feeling a lack of inspiration or faith, he says, think about me, bring me to mind. Or It's called recollection of the Buddha, practice of recollection of the Buddha. Uh, and this is said to bring inspiration and bring also a sense of faith and sense of urgency, sense of possibility in oneself, in the path, in practice. Also within the Dharma, uh, different Dharma traditions and other spiritual traditions, there is the use of the imagination for, in the service of cultivating qualities like metta, uh, loving kindness and compassion. <clears throat> uh, for example, imagining the Bodhisattva of compassion Avalokiteshvara or Kuan Yin or imagining the Buddha or if you're in a different tradition imagining Jesus or Mary and through the image constellating if you like channeling perhaps these qualities of love and compassion that helps our love and compassion increase in our hearts helps our hearts grow into expand into those qualities and in some cases also, there would be a growth, a support of aspiration. Uh, what do I want to move towards in my life? What do I want my heart to open to and towards? An increase in aspiration, an increase also in faith for some. And very similarly, or extending from those kind of practices, is a whole vast range of tantric practices regarding the imagination, tantric visualization practices. Particularly, I'm thinking now, uh, practices involving tantric deities, yidams they're called in Tibetan Buddhism. 
And this actually is quite interesting because by now, as it's moving into Western culture and becoming a bit more popularized and lots of people are doing these kind of practices, the range of conceptions that kind of underpin tantric practice is huge. It's really quite varied. And we'll go into that uh, perhaps more later on the retreat. Uh, but again, a person might be viewing the use of imagination or practicing with images in order to develop uh, their own strength, a quality like that, my strength, my ability to be strong in life, courageous, bold, upright, set boundaries, etc., so sometimes borrowing from tantric practice, for example, the more wrathful deities, fierce, demon-looking like creatures, and imagining, visualizing them in practice in order to develop these qualities for the self and the self's uh, unfolding path. And even I heard someone told me, uh, John Kabat-Zinn, in teaching mindfulness, uh, suggested uh, on occasion to imagine oneself as a mountain or just to imagine a mountain for the purpose of uh, bringing in or allowing in or imbuing the moment with a sense of unshakability, unshakability of being, of perhaps equanimity, also a sense of groundedness. So again, it's the use of the imagination in order to develop or bring in certain qualities that are helpful for the self. And then there's a whole range of possibilities, again, very wide these days, of certain more recent psychological and psychotherapeutic uses of imagination, gestalt psychology, and, and other psychotherapy and other, other forms. Um, so, for instance, the inner critic or the superego and beginning to imagine them and dialogue with them, perhaps put them in another chair and enact them and move between the self and the inner critic, etc., or a figure from a dream. But in these, often in these kind of psychotherapeutic approaches, um, all these figures, whether it's the inner critic or a figure from the dream, they, they're all regarded as somehow belonging to the self. They belong to me. They are parts of me somehow. And in some way I want to kind of integrate them into me to make myself more of a whole human being, a more balanced human being. I don't want them being stronger than me somehow, more powerful. I want, in a way, to tame them, to subordinate them to some kind of more, uh, perhaps, uh, rational or at least... Uh, sensible sort of executive decision-making self. And there's a kind of unitive uh, view there that all these disparate figures, crazy as they might seem, uncompromising as they might seem at first, or unusual, whatever, they're all brought in to uh, be made part of a kind of unity, a wholeness of self. And that's often the vision or the conceptual framework or the directionality of that kind of psychotherapeutic work. And in many traditions, uh, something as simple as looking at a candle and then shutting one's eyes and, and meditating, focusing on the inner image, uh, the remembered visual image of that candle is used purely as a concentration practice. 
Again, it's quite a narrow directionality and conceptual framework. Uh, there's no significance given to that object. could be anything. A candle, a stone, it doesn't really matter. There's no significance at all to the imagined object. It's just an exercise that's useful for developing focus of mind, steadiness of mind. Actually, on this retreat, <clears throat> starting tomorrow, we'll, we'll actually talk about using the imagination to develop what I call samadhi, and I'll explain how I'm going to use that word as more than uh, concentration. Uh, well, I'll explain that tomorrow. Uh, but we can use images to uh, work with opening up the energies of the body and what I'll call the energy body, which I'll also explain, to, to bring a sense of resource, of harmonization, of energization, of openness, of well-being into the being. So we'll explore and explain all that. So all these, and actually many more uh, that I want to go into in quite a lot of detail, uh, are possible in terms of the ways the directions we can go in with the imaginal practice and the ways we can think about them, the conceptual frameworks we can put them in. And, of course, uh, there's the possibility as human beings just to be lost in daydreaming, to be lost in worrying about the future and rehashing the past in what we call papancha in the Dharma tradition, just the mind spinning uh, perhaps with images and fantasies, but not really very helpful in any way at all. So all that and much more is possible in terms of directions, doorways, and conceptions of imaginal work and use of images for us as human beings. And when we get into this, and probably as we practice more with images, work with images and practice with them, we start to realize, I think, especially if there's an open-mindedness, that actually begins to occur to us that the most interesting aspect of working with images and imaginal practice is not, in fact, the images themselves which they can be, and we'll go into this, they can be really far out or don't seem particularly interesting at first sight. But it's actually not the images themselves that are the most interesting aspect. The most interesting aspect is rather our relationship to those images, and particularly the conceptual frameworks that we bring to bear around the images that support those images or send them in certain directions. The conceptual frameworks that we create, if you like, these, that aspect ends up being the most significant but also the most interesting. Now, when we talk about that, and as I kind of alluded to before, just a few minutes ago, uh, many conceptual frameworks are, possi are possible in terms of images and imaginal practice. Many directions are possible. For me, almost all of them are interesting, and they're all okay with me. So I really, um, I really want to emphasize that. Um, 
all of that's okay. It's okay. Well, most of them are okay in terms of how you're going to use images, how you decide to use images. If I'm honest, I say the agenda I have for this retreat, and I do have uh, an agenda, part of my agenda is really to support you in your practice with images and open possibilities for you. So that's my agenda, and that's partly up to you where you want to go with it. So there is my agenda, but there's also, and you'll pick this up, I might as well flag it right now and admit it right now, I have this agenda of supporting and opening what's uh, your desire and your inclination with regard to images. But you'll pick up that I also have a leaning personally, and I'm not going to hide that. I have a leaning to what we might say are more radical conceptions uh, regarding imagination and images. Um, a kind of, a, I'll explain more what I mean by that, but the kind of conceptional framework around images that is most interesting to me and that I probably lean to more right now for that range um, is rarer. It has a rarer appeal, I feel, it seems to me, as I look around me and listen to people, etc. Um, not that many people are interested in it, but you'll pick up that that's my leaning. You'll see what's involved, so I'm going to unfold that quite a lot over the days. I'll explain, as I said, more what I mean by that more what's included in that more radical uh, conceptual framework. But in part, part of it includes being open to the range of the kind of images that may come up or that we might entertain or work with. So, to put it a little simplistically, I am very interested and I would like to open the doorway to the whole range in terms of the kinds of images, both the kind of um, gentle, sort of white light, angelic kind of diaphanous images that might appear to us full of uh, obvious love and gentleness and kindness, and, or rather, all the way to including what might seem at first darker or weirder or might seem to some sensibilities or... Uh, preconceptions um, a little bit more disturbing perhaps. So I really want to open up that range and make it all really okay really trustworthy and I mean more than that in terms of the conceptual frame and I'll explain more as we go on. But that's tricky then because I'm in the teacher role here and so I'm asking you, if this is possible, can you please, is it possible, please trust what you want, how you want to orient in terms of imaginal practice, which might change for you over time, but please trust your sense of your purpose with all this, with images, imagination, imaginal practice. It might be for some, even at the end of this retreat, of this course, you do all this stuff, you explore, and you take away very little. Maybe you take away just uh, occasionally, you might use, very occasionally in your Dharma practice, uh, a kind of interesting technique using images, maybe occasionally. That's all it ever is for you after this. Occasionally you spice things up when you're, it's a little flat something. And that's fine. That's completely up to you. 
Or it might be uh, that what you come to, um, and some of you may already be there, um, what you come to is more a total kind of explosion, a total revolution in your way of seeing and conceiving of practice, uh, seeing and conceiving dharma, and what that means to you, seeing and conceiving the self, existence, and the world. This total uh, kind of more than just a shift, an explosion, a revolution, as I said, in, in all of that. Uh, very profound, very far-reaching. So we could ask, imagination and images in the service of what? In the service of self-development? Fine. In the service of standard Dharma practice? Fine. In the service of maybe something even bigger than that? So that's a question. What is imaginal practice in the service of? What are images in the service of? Or rather, what am I making imaginal practice and images in the service of? What am I allowing images and imaginal practice to be in the service of? So that's up to you. And again, I'll be honest, and I'll say that for me, uh, one of my deeper aims and reasons for <coughs> giving this retreat, offering this retreat and this course, one of my deeper aims, my deeper aims, is because I'm really interested in the possibility of opening up a different sense of existence. And I feel and know that that is possible through imaginal practice, as it is through other means, but particularly through imaginal practice, certain ways that the whole sense of existence of the self and of others and of this very world that we live in, the sense of all that can become quite different in a very beautiful and lovely and profound way. And with that, wrapped up in that, not just the sense, the perception uh, that's available, the perceptions of self, other, and world, but also the conceptions of existence and also the conceptions of Dharma. So part of my deeper, one of my deeper aims of the tree is, is opening up the sense of existence in those ways and the conceptions of existence and the Dharma. Part of the reason for me saying that is because it also implies then that in a way having or getting a visual image or visual images a lot in one's practice is not really that important. It's going to sound funny maybe to some people. A visual image is not that necessary because we're actually interested in something else, in a different sense of existence, in a different uh, conception of existence, of dharma, of practice, of, of the world opening up. So that, I'm putting that in now and I'll repeat that, but that also may uh, affect the way you might grasp at, I, I want to get an image, or why am I not getting an image, I'll talk, if that happens, and I'll talk more about that. 
they have a different aim in mind at a deeper level. It's also related to that, it's worth noting that um, my experience uh, for myself and working with individuals with imaginal practice is that as, as one works with images and one practices more, the whole practice, the whole of imaginal practice kind of evolves uh, in many different ways, but one of the ways it evolves, like many practices, is it evolves into more subtlety. It gets subtler and subtler um, in many ways. Um, so that often at first with imaginal practice, and often for a while, it certainly in my experience, it was quite clumsy and quite gross. And there might be a tendency for many people to identify rather too tightly or closely with an image or an imaginal figure. Or for a while to feel that there's, there's no images, I'm not getting anything. Um, one's view of what should be happening is a little too tight. Again, I'll go into this more. But whether they're, it's clumsy and gross like that, or whether there seem to be not many images arising, um, either way, um, what can happen over time is more subtle sensibilities start to open. And this, again, is, is more actually what I'm interested in. The um, support and opening and growth of, of a kind of more subtle sensibility um, regarding existence, regarding the world, uh, that is more imaginally imbued and I'll, more imbued with mythos and fantasy. And I'll explain what that means as we go on. So some people will be drawn to this course uh, because they already have lots of dreams. They have a lot of dreams every night and quite vivid and intense. Or they have a lot of images um, that come to them in meditation or other times. And they feel, I want a way of working with this. I intuit that there's... Um, a fruitfulness is possible here with these images, and somehow uh, they they sense that I they need a, a framework for conceiving of those dreams and images. So that would be really helpful as well. And our culture at present generally is quite poor in terms of uh, the frameworks it has for uh, working with images and regarding them. So the history of cultural attitudes and present cultural attitudes for uh, regarding images is quite interesting. And in a way, there's been historically quite a lot of denigration of the imagination, both philosophically and psychologically in the culture, in Western culture, over, over centuries, millennia, perhaps. So, in um, a book called Invisible Guest, written by Mary Watkins, a psychologist, she talks a little about this, and partly coming out of the view of scientific reductionism, partly uh, because of the medical model of psychology and psychotherapy, comes out of a medical model. Um, that was really established in let's say the 19th century really firmly, mid-19th century and onwards really firmly, perhaps even before. And it's interesting actually today, by, by way of aside, that the secular mindfulness schools are also kind of rooted uh, 
not completely, but a, a, a large part of their rooting is in a kind of medical model. That's where they come from. And that's what they're rooted to. That gives them certain uh, attitudes, presumptions, and allegiances, if you like. So that historically, um, in the 19th century, um, there was a sort of psychologist would, and then the wider culture would look back on people like Socrates, who spoke with his daemon, his... Uh, D-A-I-M-O-N is guiding counselor, if you like. People like Socrates, people like Swedenborg, people like St. Catherine of Siena or Dante, other great artists, many, many people. And retrospectively, uh, none of these people held to a medical model of psychology. None of these people were had any allegiance to um, scientific reductionism. But retrospectively, 19th century psychology and that whole medical basis for that and attitude for that regarded them as um, kind of crazy, maybe high functioning, but kind of crazy because of their sort of uh, relationship with their relationship with imaginal figures. And even amazingly enough, Descartes, who, of course, was the the sort of one of the, uh, if you like, um, hinge pins of the scientific revolution, actually I didn't know this until recently, had uh, a being that followed him down streets urging him not to abandon his search for truth. So some kind of imaginal character followed him and kept uh, pushing him not to abandon his search for truth. So even that would have been regarded as crazy and is regarded as crazy despite everything else these people would have been able to do and give birth to in their lives. So perhaps as a place for artists, perhaps in some other places uh, and dimensions of our existence, but it's pretty limited. And the whole attitude in modern culture towards the imagination is not really to explore it very widely, unless it's for a very limited purpose, like you want to make a crazy movie or something, or you're a novelist. And instead, what comes into the whole sensibility and the whole way of seeing um, either images, but really the world, is a kind of literalism. It's just, there's an absence of other dimensions. Everything is just what it seems to be. You see also in the, more specifically, in the kind of more common psychological assumptions um, as we moved into the 20th century, still talking about the history of cultural attitudes in the West regarding images. So the psychoanalyst W.R.D. Fairburn died in about uh, 1964, I think. And there, to sum it up too briefly, the, the, the attitude was... If there is inadequate parenting, the young child will seek to withdraw or escape in an unhealthy way from external reality, which he, he she should be um, confronting, dealing with, opening to, relating to external reality. That's the primary thing. That's what's most important. Should be doing that at the exclusion of any attending to internal fantasy, private presences or figures. 
So when there's inadequate parenting, there's a withdrawal in this view from external reality and an increase in this sort of internal private fantasy figures. And that's regarded as pathologically unhealthy uh, for the infant and, and because of that into adult life, etc. Something very unhelpful. And then just a little bit later, the psychoanalyst um, T.W. Winnicott died in 1971 a little more room for the imagination through his work with play and work with children and uh, had the idea of a transitional object. So, for example, the teddy bear for the child is regarded as a transitional object. It's not regarded by the very young child as um, totally created by the self and controlled by the self, but neither is it totally something totally separate and discovered. It's in between those two modes of being completely subjectively creative and created and controlled and completely discovered and separate from the self. And Winnicott said, this is okay. Um, this is even important, but it's transitional. It's a transitional phase. We want to move beyond it. Proper growth, proper psychological maturity means moving beyond and eventually leaving behind these kind of um, imaginal figures. But even way before this, before the 20th century, before the 19th century, James Hillman um, chronicle some of this in some of his writings. Even the, the Council of Nicaea, the Church Council of Nicaea in 787 AD, um, there was already um, a doctrinal move in the Church, very significant, very far-reaching, to depreciate the images and the significance and the sort of status of images. And then, uh, almost well, less than a hundred years later, in the Council of Constantinople, um, the doctrinal move to uh, regard the soul as being purely the rational spirit. So less the realm of images and that realm of images, the soul as a realm of images, or we'll talk a lot about this um, over the days, that whole understanding or dimension of soul was again, was either cut off or um, regarded extremely suspiciously or belittled. And again, as the so-called Western Enlightenment, the scientific revolution of the 16th, 17th centuries, where it started and gained more momentum over the coming years, the emphasis and the elevation of reason and reasoning and empiricism and uh, materialism, really, and measurement over uh, such qualities like the imagination, capacities uh, such as the imagination. Um, so that was, again, a very, very important move in the culture, uh, development, if you like, or in our cultural history that we've inherited. But again, some, for example, Henri Corbin, a great champion of the imaginal, as a scholar of... Uh, certain forms of Islamic mysticism in the 20th century. I think he died in the 70s. Um, points even further back than the Enlightenment and the Scientific Revolution uh, to the 12th century, when um, philosophically there was a sort of debate between the 
the school of Aristotle and the school of Averroes. And Aristotle triumphed and became more influential. And this was a move away from what was more dominant Platonism. And again, with that comes, uh, laid the seeds for empiricism and a denigration of the imagination, the place of images. Why, why am I saying all this? Because it's our cultural heritage. It's the air we breathe, or more than that, it's the, it's the water we swim in, like a fish swims in water and doesn't, perhaps, well, who knows what fish think, but doesn't even real, we don't even realize. This is uh, the dominant view that we imbibe and that we think through and see through. We see through by means of this view of regarding images and imagination this way. So all of these aspects of the cultural history, just highlighting a few points there, all of these and more give rise to or set in place, and often quite rigidly, a whole set of attitudes and a whole set of beliefs, in fact, uh, regarding the imagination, regarding the self, regarding psychology. Beliefs are interesting because most of the beliefs we have... um, encrust and encase and enclose the views that we have and oftentimes we're not even fully conscious of what our beliefs are about self and selves and psychology and images and reality and all of that. And we can even believe that we have no beliefs or that belief we are practicing in a way I'm practicing mindfulness and therefore I have no beliefs. I've gone beyond beliefs or something. No, look a little closer. There's a lot more going on in terms of unexamined, unconscious beliefs. So all of these cultural, historical um, <clears throat> events and movements and developments, if you like, uh, give, set in place um, and create a kind of enclosing space, uh, a weight even, of attitudes, of beliefs that inform our practices, what we practice, and also what we don't practice. How we practice and how we don't practice. So this, to me, is very, very important uh, to, to realize and then to investigate. And it's interesting for me, you know, teaching uh, in the last few years, teaching um, imaginal practice and beginning to find ways to teach that to people and work with people um, around that. It seems to me, what I've noticed, is there are four main reasons, uh, four common reasons, that some object to imaginal practice, or what we might even call imaginal dharma. And one, you can recognize some of this in the cultural heritage, one is, well, surely it's going to make you crazy. You start entertaining all these images and fantasies, and you're not in touch with reality, and it's going to... Um, fragment yourself and and you'll go crazy. So that's really quite a common view uh, that I encounter for some people. Uh, The second reason, or a second reason, um, is that, again, similar to what I just said, the dominant cultural view regarding um, uh, what is real is immensely influential 
and usually unquestioned. So we just this is just what we learn from the cultures, what we learn in school, etc. And most people don't have the sort of um, yeah adequate um, philosophical tools to really explore that and really question it. We just absorb it from the culture. This is why I call it. A kind of there's a, a metaphysics provided again. It's usually unconscious and it's usually unquestioned. We get that from the culture. What do I mean by metaphysics? I mean, um, actually, traditionally, metaphysics involves three. Uh, in philosophy, it involves three areas of philosophy. It involves ontology, which is the whole uh, investigation of what is real. The whole. Um, classification of what is real and what is not real. Uh, it involves epistemology, secondly, and that's the whole classification, investigation of how do I know anything? How do I gain knowledge? What knowledge can I trust? If, again, for example, imagination is not trustworthy. But if I can measure something or kick it or everyone agrees on it or um, other people see it, it's not just subjective, this is knowledge I can trust. So metaphysics involves ontology, epistemology, and also cosmology. What is the structure of this world, this cosmos that we live in? And again, that's some, so these three areas form a kind of metaphysics, usually unconscious, usually unquestioned, that we just simply absorb from the dominant culture. And then this affects all kinds of things in our lives, all kinds of things. And, and hugely it affects practice. And it affects uh, how we think of and regard and relate to and conceive of images and imaginal practice. So that's the second reason. A uh, third reason that some might object to imaginal practice is that actually when we really start to get into imaginal practice and sort of open it up, we start to get a sense that um, sometimes it may be possible or it may even invite us to go beyond or outside of the whole paradigm of ending suffering or reducing suffering, which is central to the Dharma, as most people would conceive it. Most people would conceive it. And the Four Noble Truths are all about suffering and the end of suffering. And yet, practicing with images, we start to get a different... Uh, or what comes available to us and what becomes important to us is a, a different inclination at times. Or there's space for a different inclination, a different direction, a different range beyond just that. And that may not sit comfortably with some people. But I'm going to talk more about that too. A fourth reason some people might object to imaginal practice is that the images that arise for them at times, or the images that they hear about, either from me teaching or from uh, someone else who shares, those images don't fit in to the kind of um, usually unconscious fantasy or mythos or image range of the Dharma for them. So, for example, the stranger images, the more erotic images, the weirder or the so-called darker images, it doesn't fit. That's not, that's not the fantasy flavor of Dharma that, uh, that a person has entertained up to now, and that, that's disturbing. 
Uh, something's pushing against those limits. Or, or and or, um, the images that arise for them or they hear about from different people uh, feel foreign to them, outside of the range of fantasy, of image, of mythos, of archetype that that person uh, favors or feels comfortable in. And that makes them uncomfortable. And partly related to that as well is a uh, perhaps sense for many people that um, the the, the self-image operating uh, dominantly is quite singular and not plural. And to have a multiplicity of self-images coming up, a multiplicity of images in the psyche operating and given equal validity, equal sense of beauty and significance, opens up the whole sense away from singularity into a, a multiplicity, plurality. And for some people that too is a little bit scary. Now, some people, however, are not okay with the dominant cultural view. They're not okay with all that. And they're drawn to imaginal practice. And they're drawn, in fact, for many reasons. It might be, for example, that they are attracted to or they sense already other senses of self. Uh, They sense themselves or their being or the psyche in this more pluralized way uh, and not in a way that's necessarily crazy. Something also might feel attractive or ring true or deeper, or more interesting um, in this in the sense of the self, and so therefore uh, in, that that's opened through imaginal practice. Something uh, feels something's bigger and more wide-ranging than the sort of typical humanistic way we tend to regard the self these days in our in our culture. Perhaps a person resonates with, finds meaningful, intuitively uh, recognizes a kind of truth to a more demonic notion of the self. The self, our human self, as, if you like, channel of some, uh, hard to put it into words, some other... um, if you like, angelic or archetypal being. And what kind of reality does that have? We'll get to talk about all this. Someone senses that in and through their life, actually senses it, feels their life that way, or intuits it already, perceives self that way. Sometimes that is the case, and that makes imaginal practice um, very attractive in some cases. And for, <coughs> for some people or other people, Um, imaginal practice legitimizes it finds a place it re-sanctifies certain 
aspects of being that can very easily be uh, sidelined or dismissed or denigrated or looked down on. Eros and the erotic, more wrathful energies, uh, divine madness, a tricksterish quality, not so straightforward and uh, simple. All these are dimensions, if you like, of um, being. They are archetypal uh, faces. They are aspects of self, if you like. And a person might feel that they have been squeezed out or unlegitimized, their holiness not seen. So this also makes imaginal practice very attractive to many people. And in relation to that, it's quite interesting now because I would say in the 21st century that the 20th and 21st century, well, long before that even, but the our modern sense of self, it seems to me, as I read the Pali Canon, obviously talking with so many people, our modern sense of self is not the sense of self, but the experience of self and the whole notion of self and personality that was that existed at the time of the Buddha and the Pali Canon. So you read the Pali Canon, there's almost no reference to anyone suffering with inner critic, which is so, the epidemic in our culture, so huge um, in relation to the kind of self we feel we have. There's, I don't know anyone who suffers from feeling like they're not expressing themselves or even regards self-expression as something important or anyone who talks about something being repressed in themselves or their self-expression. No one um, relates the pain of, for example, not feeling seen deeply or met deeply or heard deeply. These are very modern um, Notions, experiences, feelings, sensibilities. Uh, no one complained, it seemed to me back then, about their self-expression being blocked, etc. So, anyway, it seems to me that we need something more in our notion of the self. Um, for the modern West. The, in the modern West, it, I think there's quite a lot of confusion around the self, which is a whole interesting thing in itself. But we live in a culture where the self is, is very emphasized and highlighted and sort of, in a way, um, celebrated and has a kind of triumph. There's an elevation of the self. But at the same time, we... Um, really poo-poo ego and point at that very quickly, especially in spiritual circles, and very quick to regard this or that as a manifestation of ego. So we have a confused relationship with, with the self and its importance, or what it actually is, how we experience it, how we relate to it. But even more than that, we have, or Western, the modern West, I think, has a kind of poor or thin, relatively poor, relatively thin, uninteresting psychology around personhood 
not really honoring of personhood as fully, as might as extensively as might be possible. We seem a bit confused about all this. And a personhood, somehow we sense palpably the beauty of a person. And yet, intellectually, we're supposed somehow to regard that their personhood, a person's personhood, as having its roots in nature and biology and neurology or genetics. Or and or in nurture, the so-called nature-nurture debate, in the environment, in environmental causes and conditions, etc. So the roots are, if you like, pretty thin for this personhood, which we somehow also, many of us, feel to be so beautiful, so important, such a lovely dimension of existence, of being alive. There is also in that this whole sense of the singularity of self that we're sort of accustomed to conceiving of a singular self versus a more multiple self, although in some situations that is um, acknowledged. And this is one of the things that I want to open up on this street, more, 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 a, a wider, more pluralized sense of self, as I said earlier. Now, this is not just the same as um, some of the ways some people talk of anatta, this teaching of not-self of the Buddha. We're not just wanting to say, oh yes, I have many characters in me, and then uh, sort of just let them be, or not empower them. We want actually, or I want to emphasize in some of what I want to present over the coming days, uh, the possibility of empowering those characters, that multiplicity, of bringing them to life, vivifying them, giving them more life, of viewing them differently. So sometimes this multiplicity is acknowledged, um, but sometimes it's just on the road to sort of disempowering that, uh, these, these different characters, if you like, that make us up, if you want to put it that way. Um, but I'm interested in something different. Sometimes it's acknowledged. So, for example, F. Scott Fitzgerald, the novelist, wrote, uh, "There never was, there never was a good biography of a great of a good novelist. There couldn't be. He's too many people if he's any good. So it's recognised that there's that plurality. But I want to go even beyond just the recognition of it. So." <clears throat> still on the theme of what draws people to explore this kind of practice. For some people, exploring it a little, imaginal practice, they begin to get a sense quite quickly of how it um, frees up the sense of self in relation to what I was just saying before. And um, there's a a flexibility that comes into the self-view. And Few people have said, quite a few people have said to me, um, emptiness is easier to get a sense of now through uh, playing with imaginal practice. Because, in a way, one is playing and practicing with a flexibility of self-view and a flexibility of worldview. In imaginal practice, one is playing with that flexibility of views of self and world in different ways. 
For some people, it's the other way around. As their practice matures and they begin to have more uh, wider and deeper insights into emptiness, um, and for some people also a little bit of more modern philosophy and postmodernism and that sort of stuff, um, their uh, doors are opened for them uh, in their practice and in their life, really, that, that re validate, if you like, or, or make valid for them the imagination, the exploration of the imagination images. And some people are drawn to imaginal practice, but they begin to realize anyway, uh, just by paying attention more sensitively and uh, discerningly, if you like, to their uh, experience and their psychological experiences, that fantasy and image imbue our life anyway, and imbue even our, what we uh, regard for ourselves as the Dharma, our path and our practice and everything that involves. Some people realize that already, and so that realization invites them through a doorway and in a certain directions in, in relation to exploring images. And then some people are already have a sense of existence, a sense of the world, of the cosmos that is uh, already not confined by the sort of um, dominant cultural view of, of what I call modernism. Uh, or they're drawn to opening that up, opening up a different sense of existence of the world, of the cosmos. Um, so this is the thrust of tantric practice, to open up that uh, different sense of, of the world, of the cosmos, of existence. Um, in the Jewish uh, tradition, actually in modern uh, scholarly writings on the Jewish tradition, um, uh, they talk about the Midrashic condition. So Midrash in, in the Jewish tradition is uh, sort of their interpretations of uh, particularly biblical passages. And what's interesting there is there's, there's never regarded uh, a right view and a wrong view. There's always there's a there's sort of infinity of interpretations, infinity, infinity of um, openings that's possible for any one piece of, of a text. And so some modern scholars have talked about the Midrashic condition, this condition, this way of being that sees not just the Bible, but also self and other and world and cosmos as open, infinitely open to uh, a range of interpret, an infinite range of interpret, interpretability. And through that, through that, there's a kind of re, whether it's through Tantra or this Midrashic condition or what we're doing, uh, there's, there can be something I feel so important, so beautiful, a re-enchanting of the cosmos. And something perhaps that uh, the world and the human civilization at present is desperately in need of a re-enchanting of the cosmos, an opening of our sense of what is sacred. So some people are drawn because they sense, maybe clearly, maybe just vaguely or intuitively, sense that possibility through imaginal practice.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.